Does your cell phone make a lot of noise? I don't mean when it's ringing. I mean when it's just sitting there. You may think it doesn't, but actually, your phone makes a lot of noise. You just can't hear it. This is the sound of your phone when you think it's not busy. This is the sound of radiation coming out of your phone all day, every day, while you carry it around with you. So the question is, is that exposure safe? Government safety standards were set back in 1996, based on science from the 1980s, before we even had cell phones. More recent science links exposure to cell phone radiation with cancer, neurological impairment, and reproductive problems. But with trillions of dollars in profits at stake, there's a lot of pressure to just sweep the science under the rug and let people be exposed. This is how we protect public health in America when there's a lot of money at stake. This is how our government fails to protect people from a proven risk. And this is Green Street. again and welcome to Green Street, the environmental health show, Patty and Doug Wood, and our network of authors, scientists, medical professionals, engineers, activists, and others, all here on Green Street to help you understand a bit more of what is really going on in the environment around you and how you can keep your family safe and healthy in this increasingly toxic world. On our show today, we're going to talk about the radiation from cell phones and other devices and infrastructure. Over the past decade, the amount of radiation we're all being exposed to has increased tremendously. And at the same time, scientists and researchers have been getting more forceful in their warnings about the potential harm, especially for children. A few years ago, after hearing about the science showing potential harm from radio frequency or RF radiation, legislators in the state of New Hampshire put together a commission to get to the bottom of things. Was this radiation really harmful or not? And if it was, what could be done about it? One of the members of that commission was an engineer from the University of Vermont who had worked for the FAA analyzing RF signals, and he will join us here today right here on Green Street after Patty and the Green Street News. What have you got from the Green Street Newsroom today? Well, I always have interesting things. Uh, today I'm going to be talking about mostly plastics because our program is about mostly RF radiation. <laughs> Um, and yeah. plastics is really important. Uh, there are a lot of laws that are up for passing uh, in states around the country. And right here in New York, we have one. So we'll talk about that afterwards. Okay. The first article is written by Claire Asher, published in Manga Bay News. And the title is Chemical Recycling, Green Plastic Solutions Makes More Pollution. The plastics industry claims that chemical recycling or advanced recycling technologies, which use heat or solvents to convert waste plastic into chemical feedstocks that could potentially be further processed into new plastics, are a green alternative to mechanical recycling. But according to a new report, five out of eight U.S. facilities assessed use chemical processes to produce combustible fuel, not new plastics. In addition, facilities are disposing of large amounts of hazardous waste, which in some cases includes benzene, a known carcinogen, lead, cadmium, and chromium. Critics say the chemical recycling industry's multi-step incineration processes are polluting and generating greenhouse gases without alleviating virgin plastic demand. 
Environmental permits for six U.S. facilities allow release of hazardous air pollutants that can cause cancer or birth defects. A new U.N. framework to fight global plastic pollution could offer nations flexibility over how they meet recycling targets, potentially allowing the industry to lobby for policy incentives and regulatory exemptions for plastics to fuel techniques, policies that may threaten the environment and public health. A host of cutting-edge plastics processing technologies known collectively as chemical recycling are releasing large quantities of toxic and hazardous substances into the environment. But the majority, while making fuel and chemicals, are producing no recycled plastic, according to a recent report by the Natural Resources Defense Council, or NRDC. With over 240 million metric tons of new plastics generated every year, a growing global mountain of plastic waste now threatens to destabilize Earth's operating system, potentially closing the habitable window of climate and biogeochemical conditions that human civilizations have relied upon for survival over the past 12,000 years. The United States is one of the world's top plastic producers, but less than 9% of what it makes is currently recycled, mostly through the established process of mechanical sorting and shredding. Plastics industry representatives claim that so-called cutting-edge chemical recycling or advanced recycling technologies, which uses heat or solvents to convert waste plastic into fuels or chemical feedstocks, are the best recycling solution. But environmental groups, including NRDC, have raised concerns over the greenhouse gas emissions and toxic pollution generated by these processes. Judith Enk, president of Beyond Plastics, a not-for-profit project based at Bennington College in Vermont, and a former EPA regional administrator, described NRDC's investigation as invaluable, adding that every elected official who's thinking about supporting chemical recycling facilities should read the report first. However, Plastics Industry Association Vice President of Government Affairs Matt Seaholm accused the NRDC report of utilizing cherry-picked examples, incomplete data, and unsubstantiated claims. He said that attacks on advanced recycling technologies tend to follow the same pattern, ignoring the advancements and investments from many different companies, making unrealistic calls to end plastics production, and ignoring industry positions on waste-to-fuel recovery. Chemical recycling is a public relations attempt used by the petrochemical industry to try to hold back actual solutions to the growing plastic pollution problem, said Enk. She encouraged state lawmakers in the U.S. to introduce legislation prohibiting chemical recycling facilities, extending producer responsibility to discourage unnecessary plastic packaging, and incentivizing plastic bottle return programs. Judith Enk is a fighter for what's right. Yeah, a fighter for, a, for what's fan. right. A couple of things. First of all, Manga Bay News. I looked up Manga Bay to see where it was. Oh, no, it's not a place. It It is actually a news platform Service. for oh, environmental yeah. news. Oh, yeah. Well, I didn't know that. Well, now you know. I, now I do know. 240 million tons of plastic. Plastic doesn't weigh very much. So no. you can imagine that, right. how, how much, much that really that is. Really is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 240 million tons. Yeah. Okay. Um, Good. What else you yeah, got? Yeah, it's a you know it's it's a huge problem because the plastics industry does not want to stop producing plastic. It is a fossil fuel based product, right? They're using gas and oil, but mostly gas that is being utilized in these cracker plants to yeah. produce plastic. And 
they don't want to stop doing that. It's a no, money maker. No, of course not. They're making money. It's and a money maker. So you know, so let you know they're they're you know, looking uh, for a they're looking for a way out of this big crisis, and their way out is to create more pollution by burning it. Okay. What else you got? Okay. So another plastic story. Um, it was published in Salon, and the title is "A Plastic Chemical You Can't Escape Is Linked to Cancer in Children." The word phthalate is ludicrously difficult to spell for something that is absolutely ubiquitous. Because phthalates make plastic products more consistent and durable, the chemical can be found everywhere. In plumbing pipes and medical tubing, in soap and cosmetic products, in wood finishing and countless adhesives. Since the start of the century, at least 95% of the American population is confirmed to have phthalates coursing through their bodies. Now, a recent 20-year study of unprecedented scope has revealed that phthalates are linked to childhood cancers. Led by scientists at the University of Vermont Cancer Center and published in the Journal of the National Cancer Institute, they assessed phthalate exposure by seeing whether mothers had filled prescriptions for medications formulated with phthalates either during their pregnancies to measure gestational exposure and for their children up until they were 19 years old to measure childhood exposure. The researchers found that childhood phthalate exposure was strongly associated with incidence of osteosarcoma and identified correlations with other cancers like lymphoma, driven by associations with Hodgkin and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, but not Burkitt lymphoma. Lingering questions include which specific phthalates are responsible for these associations, by what mechanisms do they occur, and to what extent childhood cancer cases could be avoided by reducing or eliminating the phthalate content of medications and other consumer products. Phthalates are part of a group of chemicals known as endocrine disruptors because they alter the functioning of our hormone systems. In an interview with Salon last year, Dr. Shauna Swan, a professor of environmental medicine and public health at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York City who studies endocrine disruptors, elaborated on the specific danger posed by phthalates. Quote, these things come into the body and then leave quickly, and that's great. But what's not so great is that they're coming in all the time because there are so many sources of exposure. So many sources of exposure for phthalates are food. That's probably the primary source, end quote. Phthalates enter our food from pesticides to the processes through which they are transported to our grocery stores. She added that, quote, another thing that phthalates do is they make cosmetics and personal care products more useful because they increase absorption into the skin. They increase the retention of color, which is great for nail polish and lipstick, and they hold odor, so anything fragrant has phthalates. Swan also noted that phthalates could be linked to dropping human sperm counts and other pervasive reproductive health issues, nor are they alone in terms of being common plastic chemicals that have potentially damaging health effects. Phthalates make plastics soft. Bisphenols make plastics hard. Bisphenols can be found everywhere from tin cans and cash register receipts to pizza boxes and have the property of being estrogenic. They apparently increase estrogen in the body, and that has a lot of reproductive effects as well. Primarily as a result of hormone-altering chemicals existing in plastics, Western sperm counts have dropped from 99 million per milliliter to 47 million since the 1970s. Meanwhile, the average American consumes roughly a credit card worth of plastic each week through food and water contamination alone. Okay, so first things first. pH 
T H A L A T E S. Yes. Phthalates. Uh, Shanna Swan was our guest here on Green Street. We did a great show with her yep. about the end of the human race yes, because of because the, of sperm levels. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> you know, and and I look at these ads that you see on TV for children's cancer centers and these adorable little kids who are suffering, and you just wonder how many of these kids are suffering because of some sort of environmental exposure to something like this. Well, what's really interesting is that. Um, they have mentioned in this article, they found that the associations were apparent only for exposure to low molecular phthalates. So I was taught that small molecule phthalates, you know, are used for fragrances and cosmetics and mm -hmm. those kinds of things in liquids and so on. And that large molecule phthalates are used in plastics. Yeah. So it's interesting, but they said that phthalates make plastics soft, bisphenols make plastics hard. But what's interesting is it's the small molecule phthalates that seem to have that association with childhood cancers. And mm. just think about that for a minute. I mean, kids are exposed to fragrances in everything, right? Especially if their moms are using laundry detergents that have fragrances in them. Or stuff and, that you spray and, around your house to make it smell better. And stuff that you spray around your house, those, those plug-ins and the, and the dryer sheets. All of those are fragrances that have phthalates in them. And you're breathing it in. And, all and day we, long. you know, we've always said that that's so dangerous for kids who are asthmatic or who have respiratory problems. But that's actually dangerous, dangerous for every for all kid. Kids. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. We got one more. One more about microplastics. Oh, jeez. Microplastics. This okay. is written by Damian Carrington, published in the Guardian. Title is Microplastics Found in Human Blood for the First Time. Microplastic pollution has been detected in human blood for the first time, with scientists finding the tiny particles in almost 80% of the people tested. The discovery shows the particles can travel around the body and may lodge in organs. The impact on health is as yet unknown. But researchers are concerned as microplastics cause damage to human cells in the laboratory and air pollution particles are already known to enter the body and cause millions of early deaths a year. Huge amounts of plastic waste are dumped in the environment, and microplastics now contaminate the entire planet, from the summit of Mount Everest to the deepest oceans. People were already known to consume the tiny particles via food and water, as well as breathing them in, and they have been found in the feces of babies and adults. The scientists analyzed blood samples from 22 anonymous donors, all healthy adults, and found plastic particles in 17. Half the samples contained PET plastic, which is commonly used in drinks bottles, while a third contained polystyrene, used for packaging food and other products. A quarter of the blood samples contained polyethylene, from which plastic carrier bags are made. The new research is published in the journal Environment International and adapted existing techniques to detect and analyze particles as small as 0.0007 millimeters. Some of the blood samples contain two or three types of plastics. Researchers from Amsterdam acknowledge that the amount and type of plastic varied considerably between the blood samples, but it is a pioneering study with more work now needed. The differences might reflect short-term exposure before the blood samples were taken, such as drinking from a plastic-lined coffee cup or wearing a plastic face mask. Did you hear what I just said? Yeah. The big question is what is happening in the body. Are the particles retained in the body? Are they transported to certain organs, such as getting past the blood-brain barrier? And are these levels sufficiently high to trigger disease? Another recent study found that microplastics can latch onto the outer membranes of red blood cells and may limit their ability to transport oxygen. 
The particles has also been found in the placentas of pregnant women, and in pregnant rats they pass rapidly through the lungs, into the hearts, brains, and other organs of the fetuses. A new review paper published last week assessed cancer risk and concluded, quote, more detailed research on how micro and nanoplastics affect the structures and processes of the human body and whether and how they can transform cells and induce carcinogenesis is urgently needed, particularly in light of the exponential increase in plastics production. The problem is becoming more urgent with each day. <sighs> yeah. So... Plastics is a huge problem, and to have the industry say, "Well, you know, no, no, no problem. We're 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 just going to keep continuing to produce it at the same rate or even faster." Well, nobody thinks. But we're going to burn it. We're going to burn it, and we're going to we're going to use solvents to dissolve it, and then you know we're going to use these toxic solvents, and where that where that wastewater goes, who knows, right? Nobody thinks of plastic as a toxin. And we, we just don't. We, it's been around for so long. We use it in so many things. We don't think of it as a toxin. But clearly, as we get more and more science about this, we understand that, you know, your plastic... Right. At first, it was just... At first, it was a convenience, right? It made things lighter. Oh, at first, it was a convenience. All, all and then that. the problem is that people... It, then it was just considered litter, Right. right. Yep. Then it was plastic litter and everybody, you know, was concerned about how it looked. And, you know, plastic bags hanging in trees was very unattractive. And you certainly didn't want that in your neighborhood. Right. right. So it was a litter problem, but it's way more than a litter problem when you consider what plastic is actually made from and the fact that it doesn't ever actually go away. It just breaks down into smaller and smaller and smaller pieces where it's impacting wildlife in a major way. Yeah. And now we see that it is also impacting us because, frankly, we are wildlife. Some of us are more wild than others. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Most of us wouldn't think of New Hampshire as a state to lead the nation in protecting public health. That distinction would more likely be accorded to California or maybe New York. But when it comes to protecting people from the potential harm from radiation that comes out of all wireless devices, including baby monitors, wireless cameras, 5G antennas, smart utility meters, and the myriad other wireless devices that are taking over our lives, New Hampshire comes out on top. State representatives in New Hampshire set up a commission to study the issue of RF radiation and health, and they filled the positions on the committee with experts in various subjects. But for once, the committee was not dominated by industry folks. And what do you suppose happened? The committee reviewed all the science, interviewed experts, and decided that exposure to this kind of radiation just wasn't safe and that precautions should be taken to protect public health. They came up with a list of suggestions for actions the state could take to protect people, and those suggestions are currently being debated and, we hope, enacted. One of the members of that committee joins us here on Green Street today. Dr. Kent Chamberlain is the former chair and professor emeritus in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at the University of New Hampshire. He's performed research for the National Science Foundation and the Federal Aviation Administration. He's received two Fulbright Awards and served as associate editor for the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers. Patty and I caught up with Kent last week. Here's our interview with Dr. Kent Chamberlain. 
my specialty area is in electromagnetics, computational electromagnetics. And what that means is that given a particular configuration, that configuration could be an antenna transmitter, how strong will the signal be at any given location? So that requires modeling to figure that out. And also I have always been teaching in the area of electromagnetics. And in my research, a lot of my focus has been on safety. A lot of the work I've done has been for the Federal Aviation Administration. So I would answer questions like, what happens if I put a, a building near a, an airport? How will that affect the instrument landing system? So I would model that and find out how reflections from that building might make the landing system unsafe. So again, a focus on electromagnetics and safety. And then later in my career, I've gotten a little bit into biomedical engineering. So that is, mm. I'm looking at the impact of electromagnetics on the human body and how electromagnetic waves get into the body and what happens there. So since you mentioned working with the FAA, uh, it would be really interesting, I think, to our listeners to get your perspective on this whole debate that's been going on between the telecoms and the FAA about these 5G antennas close to airports and their altimeters not functioning properly. Well, that's uh, it's sad that the FAA should have to almost beg you know, the telecom industry to, to make things safer. What happens is, uh, and the device in question is the radar altimeter. So it operates at a particular frequency. It sends down radiation. Radiation back, uh, bounces back from the ground and gives the pilot information about how high they are above the ground. And the problem is, is if you now have something transmitting on a frequency that's very close to it, then it makes the, the piece of equipment, the, the instrument, the radar, less accurate. And so that's the, the question here. It's, it's called co-channel or adjacent channel interference is the, the technical name. So just by switching on this uh, transmitter, this 5G transmitter, you're radiating signals that kind of make the, the radar less effective and less accurate. And you think it would be a no-brainer that they, they would simply say, they, the telecom, would say, okay, we we'll, won't operate within a certain region of these devices. But apparently they are un unwilling to do that. And, and that doesn't surprise me seeing all the other things that the telecom industry is unwilling to do in the name of safety. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Am I okay. correct that they actually are two separate bands? There's a, I mean, there's a, a bunch of frequencies that are being used by the FAA for the, for the airline industry. And there's a bunch of frequencies that are being used by the telecoms, but the telecoms are letting their signals stray into areas that they shouldn't be. Well, I think it's the, the answer is that they're close enough, right? They, they're, they're not exactly at the same frequency, but there's a phenomenon called receiver desensitization. So if you have a signal that's close to the signal that you're trying to receive, your receiver says, oh, I have booming signal. I'm going to turn down the gain. I'm not going to amplify that signal as much. And as you do that, that means that the signal you want is going to be lower and lower and lower okay. in magnitude, and you're not going okay. to be able to detect it as accurately. Okay. And accuracy is something you, you would like to have with your altimeter, um, right? One <laughs> would hope when it's reporting that you're 50 feet above the ground, and you'd hate to be actually 30 feet above the ground at that point. <laughs> so tell us about the phone call that you got that said, we'd like you to be on this commission. What did you, what did you think, or how did that invitation happen, actually? So how the commission was formed is very important for the listeners to know, for your listeners to know. 
And that is, there has been confusion, and this started uh, back in 2019, with the confusion because some people were hearing that there were risks involved with exposure to radiation, but the industry has put a lot of money into spreading the word that there is absolutely no harm from cell phone type radiation. So as legislators in New Hampshire were trying to make decisions about it, they weren't getting the answers that they needed to, to act decisively and accurately. Um, again, they were hearing one side and then hearing exactly the opposite from industry. Yeah. So what they decided to do was to form a commission to answer those questions. In fact, what those questions were, if uh, you don't mind, I'll, I'll actually give you the, the actual yeah. question. Yeah. Um, why, do, why do insurance companies recognize wireless radiation as a risk? But they will not insure for damages caused by it. That was something. And, you know, the fact that nobody will insurance, not even insure it, not even Lloyd's of London, that indicates something. Indicates that there's probably some risk there. And there also, and this was built into the legislation forming the commission. So that's one of the mm -hmm. questions. Another question is why have the thousands of peer-reviewed art studies showing harm from radiation, why have they been ignored by the FCC? Why are the FCC guidelines based solely on thermal effects and warming you up uh, when the non-thermal effects have been documented to cause harm? Mm -hmm. uh, just another question that we were asked. And so why did the World Health Organization signify that wireless radiation is a group B carcinogen? And why is that fact being ignored by the FCC? So again, these are questions that are posed in the legislation forming the commission. So that legislation, which is House Bill 522, uh, this is to, in New Hampshire in 2019, that went before both houses of the legislature and got bipartisan support and then was signed by the Republican governor. So the whole point here was to bring together people, and I'll talk more about the people also because that's really important, but to bring those people together to come up with a report that would answer some of these questions in a very definitive way, in a way that wouldn't be challenged. You know, it's up to that point, pronouncements by industry and by other groups, they were so divergent that they were being questioned. So what's yeah. going on? How do you answer those questions? Will you bring together experts, unbiased experts, and let them cogitate on this for a while, if I can use that word, sure. and come up with a definitive report? Yeah, it would seem to me that the industry would be terribly not interested in having this commission go forward. Wasn't there a lot of pushback from the industry or did they, were they asleep or what happened? No, they were there. And, mm. uh, but it's kind of hard to say, no, no, we don't want you to study this, you know, because they had their narrative that they're promoting. And so they can't say, no, you can't look at this or they weren't able to say that. Yes, there was huge pushback. They were there, they were testifying, but in the final analysis, and I think this says a lot about our legislators, they decided to go ahead with the commission in a bipartisan manner. Mm, yeah, I, I've, I've run across a couple of your legislators. They've got real guts and a good testament to the people of New Hampshire. Okay, so the commission met and you came up with a report. Well, what was that like? What, when, you got, when you all got in the room, and who, who was on the commission, Kent? Well, uh, we, and this is spelled out clearly. I, I think I'm, I'm told that very few times that commissions are formed have they been so much proscribed in the legislation that convened them. So what we had in the final analysis were people with backgrounds in physics, 
toxicology, electromagnetics, that was me, uh, epidemiology, biostatistics, occupational health, medicine, public health policy, business, and law. So we had a huge range of people, 13 members. Now, almost all of them were unbiased. The, the people who were brought on board, none of us were paid to be on the commission. And so we were all volunteers and we all had expertise. There were three members that did have connections with the telecommunications industry, and they were the ones that wrote the minority report, the ones saying, oh, no, everybody else on the commission was wrong. There's actually no, nothing to see here, folks. There's no harm associated with exposure to electromagnetic fields. Yeah, I mean, there's a similar commission bill, a 5G commission bill in New York State, and they felt that um, they really wanted to have a, a very broad legislators inclusive the legislators get very inclusive so they have a lot of industry on this commission i mean it hasn't been passed it's a bill that right. hasn't passed yet but it's very evenly divided between mm -hmm. industry business and uh you know and then science and health people well that's what they yeah. felt they could get passed so we'll see yeah well it, it's <laughs> unfortunate because uh, in retrospect uh it was probably not a good idea to have the industry people on the commission because they did slow us down and they kept telling us why we were wrong as we moved through our deliberations. Mm -hmm. uh, they did bring in somebody. We brought in experts. We brought in nine outside experts, recognized experts in the field of radiation and health. And industry, the CTIA, Cellular Telecommunications and Internet Association, mm -hmm. they brought in one expert. That expert was the only paid expert to be brought in. Everybody else came on a volunteer basis. Mm -hmm. And that paid expert was the one, only one that said that radiation is not harmful. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, that's what he was paid to say. <laughs> what he was paid to say, right. That's I don't what he mean was to be, paid to say. Yeah, I don't mean to sound that cynical, but that was the result. You yeah. have one person yeah. being brought in by industry. Yeah. The person is being paid and the only person being paid. And they say, right. no, there's no, no problem with right. radiation. Right. You're listening to Green Street, the Environmental Health Show with Patty and Doug Wood, and our guest today is Dr. Kent Chamberlain, professor and chair emeritus of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering. He served on the New Hampshire State Commission that studied the health and environmental impacts of wireless communications, including cell phones and 5G. So, okay, so the story goes on so that the you came up with a with a report and then we have some recommendations, right? There's some recommendations for how you move forward now. And that's where you are right now, right? On the recommendations. That's correct. So right, right now there were a number of them and uh, one of them was to get the word out because people don't know about this issue. And if you think about it, how would people know? Who's going to be out there saying, hey, guys, you got to watch out for your cell phones? Most news outlets or many news outlets, probably the majority, receive significant revenue from telecom, right? And so they're not going to bite the hands that feed them. So they're not going to be out spreading the word. And the only people that I know of who are out there are unpaid people like me doing it on a volunteer basis and saying, hey, there are some things you should be paying attention to. And I, I think now might be a good time to say that I'm really sorry that there are problems with cell phones and cell phone radiation. When I came onto the commission, I was of the opinion that, hey, as long as you hold, don't hold your phone right next to your ear, there's no problem. That had been conventional wisdom for me, at least, until I started serving on the commission. And then we found out that it is a problem. So now that I know this, 
I feel duty bound to go out and spread the word. And that's one reason that I'm doing this public service by doing interviews like this one. And mm -hmm. I've done a, a number of other ones. So that was one of the outcomes is for us to try to spread the word and let people know about the concerns. We also had uh, a conclusion or a recommendation that cell towers be located no more than 500 meters, which is 1,640 feet for more people live and sleep and, and all that. And so we found that, felt that was an important recommendation. And now we have legislation that's being looked at before the legislature right now. It's uh, HB, uh, House Bill 1644, and it mandates that for all future cells, cell towers, they be placed you know, 1,640 feet away from where people live, eat, and recreate, or work and recreate. Mm -hmm. We look at that distance, and we think, well, you can't put it in a neighborhood then. Well, and, and this is where my training as a radio frequency engineer comes in. Remember, I, I mentioned earlier on that one of the things I did was to answer the question about where you could receive a signal for a given antenna location, transmit antenna location. And the thing is, for many, probably most locations, the vast majority of locations, there are places that you can go, you move away, you put up a tall tower, you use directional antennas to illuminate the area that, where you want coverage. And so in that scenario where you're far away from people, you get great coverage because you're going to get a greater and more uniform coverage from a taller antenna. And nobody, none of the nearby people are going to get overly exposed. Now, from a business model sense, if you know, the, what, what is least expensive to do is go in the center of a populated area, the area where you want to provide coverage, put an antenna on a building and simply crank up the power till you get the desired coverage area. Now, the problem with that is that the people near the antennas are getting really strong radiation. And, you know, they'll get the desired coverage on the outskirts, you know, far away from where the antenna is located, but the nearby people will be getting excessively, you know, excessive radiation. Um, you came to these numbers or these distances from looking at some studies. I think that there was a Brazilian study um, that you looked at that was really compelling, a really well-designed study, and it showed cancer rates. Is that correct? That's correct. And the, the long and short of it is that it shows that the closer you live to a cell tower, the more likely you are to die from a cancer uh, and that goes out to roughly one kilometer. If you're one kilometer or more from the, the antenna, the cell tower, your chances of dying from cancer are the same as the population in general. But there's a significant increase as you live closer and closer to the antenna. So regarding the Brazilian study, I will provide links to you that your listeners can download and they can see the study. Great. I wanted to ask about 5G because 5G, as I understand it, is an on-demand service with a focused beam that's going to, you know, your phone will request a certain signal and the signal will turn on and, and that's how you get it. Is that going to work with a distant tower the same way it will with an antenna that's 30 feet away? Well, a starting point here is there is no really defined 5G. I mean, it might have the technology that you just described, or it might not. Uh, it's a kind of a marketing tool to call something 5G, but there is nothing mandated. So there's no recipe for 5G and how a company wants to do it 
could be the same as what they're already doing with 4G. So in other words, they could put take what is already on the tall cell towers, put those same, you know, same type of antenna, the same type of uh, or the same, same magnitude of signal, same transmitter, basically, put that in a small cell you know, or locate that in a small cell, call it 5G, and it's the same thing as you were getting from the cell tower, but now it's a lot closer to where people live. So that's why we included 5G towers or cells or whatever you want to call them in our mandate for the 500 meter or 1,640 foot setback. So... You know, I'm just looking at how ubiquitous these antennas are today uh, and just looking at the, uh, you know, that Brazilian study and thinking about how few people and fewer, there will be fewer and fewer as time goes on, will actually be able to live in a place where they are not at risk from getting cancer from this radiation exposure. And those antennas are on 24-7, am I right? That's right. And the actual, the um, standards were set back in, well, actually in the 80s is when they did some of the research and they were codified, put into law in 1996. You know how those laws, the, the radiation limits were set? They would take rats and the rats, they learned to perform a, a function. And that function was their task was to push a lever and they would be fed food. And so they then deprived those rats of, of food, so they were starving, and they put them, exposed them to radiation, and the rats would do their, you know, get their food by pushing the lever, by performing the task correctly. And they kept cranking up the radiation until they finally reached a point where the rats weren't able to do their job correctly. And they said, oh, this is the upper limit. It's ridiculously high. And, and something I should note here is that with those extremely high limits, the threshold set by the FCC, once you get more than a couple of meters away from a standard cell facility, you're not going to be exceeding those limits. So you could be right in the main beam of one of those transmitters, a cell tower, a couple of meters away, and you're still below the FCC limits. They're ridiculously high. It's kind of like going out into I-95 and setting the speed limit up to 300 or 500 miles an hour. You're not going to give any tickets, just like there have not been any tickets given, to the best of my knowledge, to uh, providers, uh, like cell tower providers, for exceeding the FCC limits, their thresholds. Right. Well, who would, who would be out there testing it with a meter? I mean, that's the other thing. There's so many antennas out there. Who's testing those antennas to protect public health? The health well, department? And the answer is no. And, and again, my, my response to that is I know from, from doing some of the testing myself and doing some very simple calculations that once you get a few meters away from a cell tower, you're not going to exceed the FCC limits. You'll have excessive radiation, radiation that can cause harm, but it will not be above the FCC limit. In fact, there have been strong evidence of harm for radiation that was less than a percent of FCC limits. And that's for the electrosensitive population. Right. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're seeing most of these biological effects at non-thermal levels. It, exactly right. Yes. Yeah. Well, and, and don't forget the FCC is allowing manufacturers to average those exposures over time. So it's not, a, it's not the peak levels of exposure that people 
that the FCC is is measuring. And, you know, that's not your body doesn't experience RF radiation averaged over time. As one of the scientists, one of my scientist friends said, the average wind speed in Tornado Alley is six miles an hour. But obviously that doesn't reveal the, the true nature, because when there's a when there's a tornado, all hell breaks loose. And and in terms of your body, and I've talked to Dr. David Carpenter about that, about this fact that these large peaks of RF energy, for instance, that come from smart meters, for instance, can be really, really damaging to your health. And yet they're within FCC limits, because when you average it over time, they're within the, the you know, the, I'm glad you raised that issue. It's something about the radiation from our cell phones is that they are impulsive, as you just described. So it'll be transmitting nothing, and then it gives a pulsive of information where it's tra transmitting a packet of information. So you get these bursts. And according to somebody I know who studies this, says that, it act, that, that those impulses act like jackhammers biologically. So you're getting nothing, nothing. You get this very strong pulse of energy. And that's where you get things like the oxi oxidative stress that's associated with non-thermal, non-ionizing radiation. And this is the perfect crime, right? Because most people can't feel it. They can't see it. They can't taste it. They can't touch it. They have no idea. It's those few people who are suffering from EHS or electromagnetic hypersensitivity that are excruciatingly um, sensitive and can feel everything. And it's, yeah. you know, yeah. this is this is a tough thing. It's, it's interesting that a lot of people that we talked to said that they were never sensitive until the smart meter was put on their house. Then all of a sudden they could no longer live there because it was just, it, it, it caused so many health problems yeah. and they were so, you know, worried about, you know, what was happening to well, them. It opened the floodgates so that they were now mm -hmm. sensitive to their phones and sensitive mm -hmm. to their laptops. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't have a smartphone. You know what? I mean, I don't even know where my okay, phone is. Okay, don't brag. People always say, you know, where's your, where's your phone? I'm like, I don't know. It might be in the glove compartment. I'm sure it's, I'm sure it has no power anymore, but you know, I don't, I don't use a smartphone. We're completely hardwired. You know, everything is hardwired in our house, in our home. Well, this we, is a hardwired computer I'm on. Yep. Yeah. And we do everything hardwired. It's safer. It's faster. It's more secure. It's just, the, it's, and we're not exposed. I mean, I go around with my meter in my house and it's green, 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 green. Yeah. Ken, I think you were going to say something before about the electromagnetic sensitive population. Yeah. Yes. Um, and there is, there are, well, a couple of things. One is that if you're drinking leaded water, water with lead in it, you don't taste it. You don't notice the difference. And it's kind of similar. It's a toxin. But over time, it gets to you. And that's what we're finding and what's a lot of what the research shows about cell phone radiation. It's an oxidizer. So it is sometimes referred to as oxidative radiation. So we have the ionizing radiation. We know about that. But then you have the oxidizing radiation. And that creates the free radicals. So when you expose yourself to radiation, you age faster. Now, that's one reason we eat you know, foods that are antioxidant why we take certain supplements, they're antioxidant. We're trying to stop the process that cell phone radiation accelerates. That's really a good point and well said. Well, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, what else, uh, is there anything we haven't covered, Kent, that you wanted to, uh, to get across? 
Um, but there, there perhaps are things that need to be said. Uh, one is I, I talked a little bit about the commission. Uh, we met for nine months, uh, for, for over a year, sorry. We have a report and I can link that report. And I think it's a little bit intimidating when you look at the report and you see 390 pages. But really, if you read just the introductory materials, you'll get most of what you need to get because most of the report, as with a lot of reports of this type, uh, the, the information is contained in the appendices. Yeah, yeah. So I, I encourage people to at least look at part of the report, and it, I, I will link that for tell your, me, tell, your listeners. Tell me a little bit about that. I'm, I'm curious about the tenor of your meetings. Was it tense? Was it friendly? Was it what, what, what was you know, it like? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Uh, I felt it was really, really positive. I mean, you had some people that came in there with preconceptions, you know, the people from industry, but they were just kind of on one side and they didn't say all that much. Uh, but for those of us who were really interested in digging into the science, for really understanding this problem, there was a great camaraderie. And it was a really, they're really nice exchanges. And they say we brought in experts. So that would be a typical meeting is you'd have somebody like David Carpenter. He came in and spoke with us. So he would talk with us. And then after we were done hearing what he had to say, we would talk about what he said amongst us, the commission members. And there was great unanimity and decisions about who should be doing what regarding uh, the information. What more did we need to know? Hmm. And- there's one other thing I, I before we leave in, in a, yeah, sure. and that is a, a very important role that I played within the commission was to evaluate the quality of journals that were used to provide information. And the reason that I did that and the reason I was asked to do that is industry says there's no problem with radiation exposure and the only journals or only articles that show harm are from what they called fringe journals and they are cherry picked. So I, what I wanted to find out is I wanted to look at some of these journals because we were finding hundreds or perhaps thousands of articles showing that there is harm. And so I wanted to answer the question, is this a quality journal? So I have in the past, I've done work evaluating the quality of journals. I was an associate editor for IEEE transactions on antennas and propagation. And so I am familiar with evaluating journals and I, would, I worked with our college librarian to look at the journals that reported harm in, in the articles they published. And those were very high quality journals. You know, the editorial staff were from high, highly respected universities. The, the writers themselves were from high quality universities. Uh, typically, you know, I'm saying universities, but I mean, uh, I don't mean to exclude people from industry. There are a lot of high quality people from industry that publish. Mm -hmm. So the bottom line is, no, there are great publications that are not fringe journals that show that there's harm. Yeah. And not and not just and PubMed, but but not just in this country, in other countries as well. Exactly. I'm glad you mentioned that. So we looked at it, journals across the spectrum and from around the world, and they, you know, and you know, so lots of different authors all reporting the same thing, and that is there is harm associated with radiation exposure. And the other thing was cherry picking. And so you look back through the history of, you know, who published what, and there are some really good uh, analyses out there. And they show that back in 2010, only 22% of the industry funded studies showed harm from radiation. 
Well, still, if it was 22%, that's, that's concern for me. But for those studies that were not funded by industry, over 60% showed harm. And that was in 2010. Now let's fast forward to 2020, and now fully 91% of all studies that, that look at radio, the oxidative stress issue that I talked about, 91% of those articles show that there is an effect from exposure to cell phone radiation. Wow. So what do we do about this, Kent? I mean, <laughs> Doug and I are like, we're killing ourselves. I mean, we've got, you know, Americans for Responsible Technology. We've got the Baby Safe Project. We've got Tech Safe Schools. We've got, you know, just uh, even the Child Safe School. We have a whole section on wireless radiation. But we are really trying to, to hit parents of young children. That has always been our focus because if there is a segment of the population that is going to make changes in their life, it is usually those protective parents right? They have young children and they really, you know, are still in that mode where I'll do anything to protect my child, right? Oh, yeah, still... I've seen that in action. It's, it's yeah. a wonderful thing to see. It's a wonderful thing to see. I always say, you know, if you've ever gone past in, in the early spring, you've gone past a, you know, a pond with a bunch of Canada geese, you know, and they've got their little goslings. I mean, they hiss at you, you know, at any other time of the year, you know, they're fine. You can walk past them and they're fine. But when they have little ones, they want you to stay away. And it is just, it's the nature it's, of, oh, nature. you know. So we do try to focus on that. We're, you know, we're embarking on a big program to um, to contact all of the teachers unions for the Tech Safe School projects across the country. Because, you know, these teachers unions have health and safety committees where they're really focused on protecting their members. And in that profession in particular, there are a lot of young reproductive age women and men uh, that are working in a school environment. A school environment is a pretty hot, a pretty hot environment for radiation these days with all the, uh, you know, the online learning and the, the routers and every kid's got a cell phone. You want to add up the cumulative amount of radiation in a classroom with 30 kids in it. Everybody on a wireless device and a phone and a router and a whiteboard and everything else. You know, you're making a point that I think uh, should be addressed. And that is uh, people don't realize this when they're making measurements with a meter. It, with meters typically show will be the peak values of radiation. But the reality is it's the sum of all of that radiation that causes harm. So if you have one cell phone sitting on your desk, you get you know, so, so much radiation. If you put an identical cell phone next to it, you're gonna be getting twice the radiation. And that's not taken into account in a lot of what's you know, being done in terms of measurements. And so that's one of the recommendations of our commission that I didn't mention earlier. And that is we need to find new, more accurate and perhaps more appropriate ways of measuring radiation that takes the summative effects into account summative effects huh that's really interesting the the other thing is that you know we have said uh, that an individual device may meet the fcc guidelines but you rarely in a school environment have just a single device so it's the same thing right i mean we're yeah. talking about uh, you know 50 devices in a classroom all irradiating well, a person that you should talk with is Magda Havas. She's the one to make measurements. And I think it was something that she did where she made measurements in a crowd where all people had their cell phones. So everybody was kind of pushed together. Yeah. And what she found is that, yes, you can start 
getting very close to or or even exceeding FCC limits under those circumstances. Mm. You know, something that is not considered is that this device right here, it's a microwave transmitter. Yeah. And it can go mm. up to three watts of power. I mean, that's stunning to me and peak power. So what happens when you get a bunch of these together? Again, you get that summative effect. And that sum may exceed FCC limits. And certainly, even if it, I don't care what about the limits, I think they were, they were just arbitrary and capricious, to use the word of the judge. Of the judge. Mm -hmm. Yes, we need to start looking at these in a different manner. And I, I want to reinforce the statement that this doesn't mean you can't use cell phones or you can't use wireless devices, but you just, we need to look at ways of making them safer. And here's just one example. You know, a lot of people, when they go to bed, what do they do? They take their cell phone and they put it right down on the nightstand next to their head. Here's this thing radiating all night. You know, it's talking to the tower. It doesn't, you know, get quiet at night when you go to sleep. And so here you are in a time of, of the day when you are really trying to recover and restore your body and you're, you're being irradiated at that time. So a really simple fix would be, you know, to have your phone use its smarts to realize, hey, I'm sitting down here. I last communicated with the cell tower over here. I don't need to say anything more. I can be quiet until I'm moved again. And that would be really simple. It would save battery life. Why don't they do that? And I could give well, you know, other uh, things too. That there are lots of other options, other ways of lessening the radiation that people are exposed to. Right. And just could you just end by talking about the cumulative? I know you talked about the summative effect of, you know, um, but what's the cumulative effect on a, on, on a human when we're talking about potential harm, potential biological systems harm? Is every time you're exposed to cell phone radiation just kind of adding up so that eventually you hit the wall? The problem with a lot of things that we consider to be you know, not good, not healthy things is that it can cause us to prematurely age. And I'm thinking of things like smoking and drinking. And, and one reason they cause us to prematurely age and, and get sick and get cancer is that it causes oxidative stress. Drinking causes oxidative stress. And, you know, then smoking does too. And so when you're exposed to a cell phone, you're increasing your oxidative stress, period. So you're going to prematurely age. And what happens also is that Oxidation leads to inflammation and inflammation leads to cancer. And that's the connection there. Right. So if you're sitting, you know, sitting next to your cell phone and have your cell phone in your pocket or in your bra, I mean, it can certainly cause very bad things to happen to your body. And it certainly causes you to age faster. One reason I like the study that we referred to earlier, and that was the study done in Brazil between 1996 and 2006. Okay. Now, at that time, they were trying to build the infrastructure. They were building the infrastructure for cell phones. And uh, at that time, a very small percentage of the population had cell phones. Only 28% of that population had cell phones. So we can extrapolate back to the time of the study and a much smaller percentage had cell phones. Mm -hmm. So the main radiation source being looked at were the cell towers themselves. Mm -hmm. So yeah, certainly your cell phone is a strong uh, source of radiation, but because of the cumulative effect, any source of radiation is going to, to contribute to your overall radiation load.
You've been listening to Green Street, the environmental health show with Patty and Doug Wood, and our guest today has been Dr. Kent Chamberlain, Professor and Chair Emeritus of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering, and a member of the New Hampshire Commission that studied the health and environmental impacts of wireless communications, including cell phones and 5G. That's going to do it for our show today. If you missed any part of today's program, you can always hear it again at our website, greenstreetradio.com, where we archive all of our shows, and you can find links to the things we discuss. You can also sign up for program alerts and give us feedback. So please visit us at greenstreetradio.com. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Kent Chamberlain, and all of our listeners across the country. We appreciate your support. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street. Until then, please be safe and be well. We'll see you next time.